All of instruction is, to some degree, repetition. I've been married for 14 years, and my wife has been trying to instruct me on cleaning the floor on my side of the bed. And that instruction happens through constant repetition. I'd like to hope that maybe I've gotten a little bit better at it through the years, and yet repetition is still necessary. If you work over others, if you're a boss, if you're a manager, and you're training someone to work with you, to work under you, well, then you know that your instruction will be repetition. By the way, as I'm talking, kiddos, you can be dismissed to your class in the back. Your teachers will be at the back door with you. But you know what I'm talking about. No, you don't run the cash register that way. You do it this way. No, when you ring it up, you ring it up this way and not that way. Yes, I know. But no, you need to do it this way. And I'm going to tell you that again. And I'll tell you again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day until you get it. I'm going to beat it into your head. If you're a parent, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't even need to elaborate. Parenting is repetition. But so is ministry. The gospel ministry is, in essence, repetition. That it has to be beat into our heads. One pastor was giving an illustration of a Coke machine in his building. It's an old Coke machine where you put the quarter in and it doesn't immediately drop. So when you put the quarter in, you have to... You have to beat the machine on the side until the quarter drops and the Coke dispenses. Well, that's kind of like what it is for all of us when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther put it this way in his commentary on Galatians. He said this. He says, here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that's the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. It is most necessary, therefore, that we should know this article well, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, teach it to others, and to beat it into their heads continually. The story is told that one of his parishioners walked up to him one day and says, why do you teach the gospel every time you preach? And he goes, because you forget it every single day as I do. So I'm going to preach it to you every single week. When we gather again, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. When you get to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is, listen, 1 Corinthians are a messy church. All kinds of stuff going down in that church. And yet when you get to the end of it, Paul doesn't give a list of all the things that they need to do in order to, in order to grow in grace, to overcome sin, to walk in holiness, to enjoy unity, to see marriages restored. What does he say? He says, let me remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that which you have believed and in which you now stand. Let me remind you of something you already know. The Apostle Peter, at the end of his life, he says he's pouring out his life like a drink offering. His days are numbered, and he's writing to the church these, these sojourners and exiles persecuted for the gospel's sake in the Roman Empire. And he tells them that here's the truth of the gospel of what Christ has done in his life and in his death, and now you're being united to him. Here's the kind of character that that should be producing in you, only here's the problem, the Christian life. We get so myopic. It's literally the word that he uses, myopic. We get short-sighted, so focused on things in our own lives, so focused on our circumstances that we forget those gospel promises, the hope that we have in Christ. And so here's Peter at the end of his life, as is the case with so many of us when we get to the end of our life, his focus is becoming more sharp. It's becoming more clear. His life is all about one thing. And what is that one thing that he's committed to? That I would remind you of the gospel in which you stand. 
that the Apostle Peter, going to the grave, is committing himself to a ministry of gospel reminding, and that's at the heart of gospel ministry. You don't hear one message, and you don't just get it. We've got an enemy that hates the gospel. We've got hearts that are deceitful above all things and are prone to forget the gospel. We have minds that are still yet warped by sin in the fall that have not yet been perfectly uh, recreated in the image of Christ through the resurrection. And for all of these reasons, we need to come time and again to the gospel of Jesus Christ and be reminded of what he's done for us and of who we are in him. The book of Galatians is all about gospel reminding. That is what the Apostle Paul has set out to do. And we see this here at the end of our chapter 6. We've been preaching through Galatians now for several months since the beginning of the fall, verse by verse, beginning in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. Now we find ourselves at the end of chapter 6. We're going to finish the book today. And Paul is going to end where he began, and that is with Christ crucified. But I don't want you to get the notion that what Paul's primarily concerned with is doctrine and theology, though he is. Paul's also concerned with how this doctrine, this theology of the cross, works itself out into our lives as we seek to love, encourage, and guard one another with that very same gospel. So it's for that reason that even though I'm going to be preaching from verse 11 through the end of the chapter, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 6 and read the whole chapter in context. There's some for these first few verses that look at restoring one another, of bearing one another's burdens, of not being deceived as as being a bunch of individual little proverbs kind of strung together, not necessarily having anything to do with one another, but I think that when you look at it, there's actually a great unity to this whole section, and that unity is explained in verse 26, or it's begun in verse 26, which many scholars believe should probably be the first verse of chapter 6. So I'm going to begin there, chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who is spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then we, as, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Now see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ." For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the Lord has been crucified, by the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. We're well, here in verses 11 through verse 
18, we're going to see no less than three things. We're going to see in verse 11 that we must be burdened for the cross. That we must be burdened for the cross. We're going to see in verses 12 and 13 that we must do battle for the cross. We must do battle for the cross. And finally, in verses 14 through the end of the chapter, in order to do these things, to be burdened for the cross and do battle for the cross, we must finally, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, boast in the cross. We must boast in the cross. We must be burdened for the cross. We must do battle for the cross. And we must boast in the cross. That's some good alliteration. All you Baptists can start speaking in tongues now. Let's consider that first point. That we must be burdened for the cross. Paul says here in verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 epistles. We have 13 of them inspired by God, included in the New Testament. Twelve of them were dictated by Paul to an amanuensis. That just, it's like a secretary, someone who is writing on his behalf. Out of those 12, three of them, Paul signs off with his own hand. So he concludes the letter kind of with a signature. 1 Corinthians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians. But there's only one letter of those 13 that Paul wrote with his own hand, beginning to end, that he wrote personally, and it's the letter to Galatia. Why is that? Why is it that of all of his epistles, that this is the one that Paul wants them to know, that I have written this with my own hand? He says, look at my sloppy handwriting. You know it's me. Well, we know that part of what Paul is combating in this church is a group of teachers that had come in from behind him. They had said, listen, you don't need to listen to that Apostle Paul. He's a second-rate apostle, and he's teaching a second-hand gospel. Rather, we, these are Judaizers, they said, we've come directly from Jerusalem. We've come from the mouth of Peter and James themselves, and we've come bearing a true gospel. And so we've come to complete that which Paul has done. He's given you, yes, good truth, but he hasn't given you the whole truth, and now we're going to complete the truth. So these false teachers said, yes, Christ is good, trust in Christ, but Christ is not sufficient. You have to also add to Christ circumcision, which, according to these Judaizing teachers, meant or embodied total obedience to the law of Moses. In other words, they were preaching that if you are a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, you needed to become a Jew if you wanted to be a Christian. It was Christ plus circumcision, or Christ, plus works of the law, to stand justified before God and included in his covenant people. Paul didn't give you the whole story. The apostle Paul, no, Paul is just a second-rate apostle teaching a second-hand gospel. And so Paul takes this charge very seriously. And with great passion, he takes up his own pen and he writes his own letter to this church, defending not only the credibility of his apostleship, but the integrity of the gospel message that he has preached. And at the very heart, the epicenter of that message is the cross of Christ. And we see that from beginning to end. It's the heartbeat of this letter. It just pulsates, thumps like Daniel Vias on the cajon. Boom, boom, boom. The gospel, cross of Christ, cross of Christ, cross of Christ. Take a look at this, Galatians 1, 3 through 4. He starts off the whole letter with Christ's substitutionary work for sinners. Normally, Paul would save something like this for the end of the letter. But here he front loads it. He doesn't give any greetings. He doesn't say how proud he is of the church. He does that in all of his other letters. But here, he just comes out guns blazing for the sake of the gospel. Verse 3, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But Paul can't stop. He continues, chapter 2, verse two or verse 20. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And he just keeps going. Chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then he keeps on going. Chapter 4. He's just one blow after another. Verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here in chapter 1, all the way through chapter 4, chapters 1 and 2 being his biographical section, chapters 3 and 4 being his theological section, at the very heart of both is the cross of Jesus Christ. His redeeming work on the cross as a substitute for sinners, sufficient payment by his blood for every single man or woman from every single tribe, tongue, and nation who would repent and trust in him alone. That is the heartbeat of this letter. And with all of his sloppy handwriting, from beginning to end, he is taking aim at the credibility of his apostleship, and he is especially taking aim at the credibility and the trustworthiness of this gospel message. And so it's no surprise then that he ends the letter with the exact same message. He is burdened for the cross the cross is at the very heart of the Christian life. If he were to sing a hymn, he might sing something like, All we have is Christ. That he's burdened for the cross. So the entire book is about the person and work of Christ. At the epicenter of the letter of Galatians is salvation offered by God to sinners through Christ alone, by faith alone. For Paul and for believers... In all places, through all ages, this is the burden for which we should die. This is the burden for which we, like Paul, should be willing to suffer in prison. This is the burden for us, just like Paul, that we should be willing to give up those things which are most precious for us, even our loved ones. You remember Jesus said, I came not to bring peace but a sword meaning that he and your allegiance to him, it is going to define fathers from sons and mothers from daughters. That your allegiance to me may very well lead to you having to leave your family or to be rejected by them. I received a text last month on April 20th from a fellow pastor, a friend of mine. We keep in touch from time to time. He texted me and he said, pray for our brother. Brother who had come to Christ through the ministry of the church, members had shared the gospel with him, loved him well, had come into the church. He said, pray for our brother, and I quote, he's getting baptized tomorrow. He was told by his mother that he's dead to her because he's following Jesus. We might be tempted to think that this kind of burden for Jesus, because we live in this Christ-haunted Bible belt, is an aberration. But when we look at the global scope of Christianity, what we find is that this kind of burden for Christ and for the gospel, this is normative for the Christian life. Of brothers and sisters being rejected by earthly families, yet finding in the family of God a heavenly family, a new father, new brothers, new sisters, that those who would be considered unrighteous and infidels for their religion, for their allegiance to Christ, are now holy and completely righteous in Christ, accepted by their Father. Paul says, this is my great burden. It's the burden for which I will write this very letter, even with my own sloppy handwriting. Look at these big words. I'm not going through an amanuensis. I'm not going through an intermediary. I need you to know from my own hand how central the gospel is to your life. This is our burden. This is my burden, he says. And so it should be for us as well. But he says also, not only should we be burdened for the cross similarly as Paul, but in verses 12 to 13, we ought to, we're going to have to do battle for the cross. Because there are all kinds of messages and there are all kinds of messengers that would seek to undermine the cross, perhaps even with the best of intentions. 
and preach a message that suggests that Christ died for no reason. And so he says here in verses 12 to 13, follow along with me. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Notice a couple things. Their message, Paul reminds us, as he has throughout the letter, that their message was circumcision. At the heart of that message of circumcision was obedience, outward obedience, to the ceremonial law of Moses, that you have to obey the law. If you're a Gentile and you want to be a Christian, then you've got to become a Jew. Otherwise, you have no lot with Abraham and his sons. In other words, Christ is good, but Christ is not enough. Christ is good, but you need Christ plus something else in order to be right before God the Father and included in his people. You want to be family? It's Christ, but it's Christ plus something. Now, I doubt that many of us today have a Judaizing impulse with respect to circumcision. There's not many churches today that greet you at the front door with scissors and demand what the Judaizers are demanding. But we have our own kinds of circumcision, don't we? Our own laws that we raise up in addition to Christ to say, you must do this and be this way if you want to be a Christian. Yes, Christ is good. Christ is not, though, sufficient. It's Christ plus something. For the Judaizers, it was Christ plus perfect obedience to the ceremonial law that Gentiles must become Jews if they want to become Christians. But perhaps for us, it's Christ plus perfect politics. The conservatives might say that progressives must be conservative if they want to be Christians. And perhaps more progressive Christians would say Christ conservative Christians need to be more progressive if they truly want to call themselves Christians. Or perhaps it's not just Christ plus perfect politics, but it's Christ plus perfect theology. I am a card-carrying Calvinist. And yet there are very few that have caused more disrepute for the glorious doctrines of grace than Calvinists themselves. The biggest problem with Calvinism is not Calvinism. The biggest problem with Calvinism is Calvinists. But perhaps it might be Christ plus perfect theology that Arminians must be Calvinists if they want to be Christians. John Newton wrote this, I pity such wise-headed Calvinists as you speak of. I'm afraid there are no people more fully, that more fully answer the character and live in the spirit of the Pharisees of old than some professed loud sticklers for free grace. They're wise in their own eyes. Their notions, which the pride of their hearts tell them, are so bright and clear, sear them for a righteousness. And they trust in themselves and despise others. This is what John Newton, how this, this old faithful Calvinist concluded. He said, one modest inquiring Arminian is worth a thousand such Calvinists in my esteem. So maybe it's Christ plus perfect politics. Maybe it's Christ plus perfect theology. Whatever it may be, here's the biggest problem with that kind of Christ plus something legalism. We see, number one, in verse 12, that it's always concerned with making a good showing in the flesh. It's always much more concerned with outward appearances and outward adherences than it is with inward transformation and devotion. But it's also, secondly, look at this in verse 13, or in verse 12, rather, or verse 13. The problem with the legalist is not only that they're concerned with outward oppressions and inward transformation, but secondly, that they demand that others do what they themselves cannot do. 
Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. It is hypocrisy. It is to raise up a new law and say that only by Christ plus keeping of this law, whether a law that we see in Moses or a law that I myself will erect, makes you acceptable before God. But either way, you're saying justification comes in some way through works of the law. But here's the problem. No man can be justified by works of the law, whether the Mosaic law or through perfect politics or through perfect theology or any other law that we would raise up. And to suggest such a thing is to make ourselves, at the very heart of our message and ministry, hypocrites. It's to undermine the good news of Jesus Christ. It's to do what Paul warns against in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no reason. The moment that you and I say that it's Christ plus perfect politics, the moment you and I say it's Christ plus perfect theology, the moment that you and I say it's Christ plus perfect parenting, perfect schooling, perfect whatever, the moment that you and I do that, we say that Christ died for no reason, the cross is meaningless. Oh, I fear that the spirit of the Judaizers is alive and well in our churches. It may even be alive and well in some of our own hearts. Which is why we need to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over and of the free grace of God over and over and of what Christ has done for us over and over and over again because your temptation and mine is to always have our hearts leak toward those things that we think outside of Christ make us more deserving of being in rather than out, accepted rather than rejected. Oh, that undermines the good news of Jesus Christ. And it leads to hypocrisy. And lastly, look at these motivations of these false teachers. So we've seen their message, Christ plus works of the law. We've seen their hypocrisy, but now look at their motivations. Verse 12, why are they doing this? In order, first of all, that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In verse 13, that they may boast in your flesh. There's their twofold motivation for their ministry. Consider that first one, that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul says that this message of obedience by works of the law removes the very offense of the cross. Chapter 5, verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Why is it ultimately that these Judaizers, and why is it ultimately that we preach politics? Why is it ultimately that we will preach perfect theology, perfect parenting, perfect whatever, in addition to Christ. It's because there's an impulse in our motivations that wants to remove the offense of the cross. That it might not bring more trouble for us. That we would be more acceptable because we know that this world finds the cross offensive. This is the way it's always been. Consider Alfred Jules Ayer, the old philosopher, atheist philosopher. He says that the theology of the cross is, quote, intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Bertrand Russell, the late Agnostic philosopher said, No one who is profoundly human can really believe, in God, believe God would punish sin like that. He called the cross, and I quote, the doctrine of cruelty. Close quote. What the doctrine of the cross does is it causes offense. Religion, though, never causes offense. Out, concern for outward appearances, concern for works of the law, never causes offense. Most people in the world, they think, well, religion is okay. In fact, in many ways, religion is good for us. But the doctrine of the cross, oh, that's offensive. Are you saying that those of us who have worked our entire lives to keep ourselves out of the gutter are in the exact same place as those who are in the gutter? 
And that those of us who are out of the gutter have to be saved in the exact same way that those who are in the gutter have to be saved? Surely there's got to be a different set of rules for those of us who have worked so hard to keep our lives so neat, proper, and clean. The cross says that you are dead in your trespasses, that you are by nature children of wrath, that all have sinned, none are righteous, no, not one. That the cross is the great leveling field that knocks every sinner off their pedestal and makes everyone equal with respect to their need for the grace of God in Christ. Well, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that good people from other religions who have led good moral lives, that if they don't believe in the cross of the Christ, they won't be saved? How dare you suggest something like that? Now, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that my LGBTQ friend whom I love, my family member who I love, that they are in a loving and monogamous relationship, committed, in fact, they're more loving in that relationship, more committed in that relationship than other heterosexual friends and family members that I know? And are you saying that somehow God is not pleased with that kind of love, that God is not pleased with them, will not accept that kind of lifestyle, that they have to repent from it, turn from it, and that that is sin that Christ was crucified for on the cross? No way! That's not the God that I know. That can't be the the Jesus of the Bible. This is the debate that rages today. So naturally, in the face of mounting pressure, and in hopes of the Christian message gaining wider acceptance, we're always tempted to subtly change the Christian message by removing the offense of the cross. We think in such deluded ways and are tempted by the devil to think that if our message is rejected or is met with hostility or is met with persecution, then there must be something wrong with our message. And so we look to the culture for cues on what will make our message more widely acceptable. And the moment that we do that, we begin to change and undermine the very message that we've been called to steward by God. Consider TV preachers. How many of them, when you turn them on, watch Joel Osteen, watch Creflo Dollar, watch any one of these kinds of preachers ever stand up and preach the total depravity of man, the inability of man to do anything in and of themselves to please God, much less curry his favor for the sake of additional blessing? How many of them preach a gospel of a cross whereby the very Son of God is crucified in grotesque fashion in the place of sinners, and yet only those sinners who would turn from sin and trust in Him, and that their greatest need is not escape from difficulties in their life. Their greatest need is escape from God Himself, and that Christ would die as a wrath-absorbing sin removing substitute for sinners. When's the last time you heard that come out of Joel Osteen's mouth? And yet he has a church of 30,000 people. Why? Because there's no offense. We're always tempted to undermine and remove the offense of the cross because we think that there must be something broken in our message if everyone everywhere isn't flocking to come here and accept our message. And so we add more conditions. Listen. It's Jesus, but it's Jesus plus sow a seed. It's Jesus plus greater faith. It's Jesus plus whatever. And if you're able to attach these things to Jesus, then Jesus will liberate you from your present circumstances, will liberate you from your poverty, will liberate you from this oppressive relationship, will liberate you from whatever. That is a really attractive message for a culture that loves to barter with their own morality for blessing. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once we remove the offense of the cross, 
we lose the gospel. So we can say gospel all we want. Gospel, 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 gospel. Good news, good news, good news. But the content of the gospel has to be the cross of Christ. And if it's not, then whatever gospel we're talking about is not the same gospel that Paul is talking about here. And so we have to battle for the gospel against our own temptations, against those who would teach a different message, and we have to wage war for the integrity of the gospel in the same way that Paul does here, because there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Amen? That's got to be at the heart of our ministry. But Paul's going to say finally in verses 14 through 16, not only must we be burdened for the cross, not only must we battle for the cross, but we must boast in the cross. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get into understanding what he means here in verse 14 by boasting, we have to understand what Paul means when he talks about the cross. For an example, turn to Mark chapter 8. That if you get the theology of the cross wrong, then everything else that follows in terms of the Christian life and of community and of the church and of our ministry ends up unraveling as well. The theology of the cross is the engine. Everything else is the, is the caboose. The theology of the cross is to be front-loaded. It is foundational that Christ is the cornerstone of the church. Mark chapter 8. Many of you are already familiar with this famous interaction between Jesus and his disciples. He says, who do the people say that I am? And Peter, being the one who loves the microphone, stands up first. And he says, well, you know, some people, verse 28, say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked him, verse 29, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, well, you are the Christ. And then he strictly charged him, tell no one about him. If you look at Matthew's account, it says, Blessed are you, Simon of Barjonim, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but our fathers in heaven. The only way that you could have come to understand that is if God in his great mercy opened your eyes to see what nobody else is able to see. Those who are blinded in sin cannot see it. You were once blinded in sin, but now you see, and God has been gracious to show you. But notice this, that as soon as Peter confesses him in the, as the Christ, Jesus, in verse 31 and following, immediately goes into this theology of the cross. He began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things, rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, in other words, ain't no confusing his words. This was a simple sermon. No confusing what he had to say. And yet, at the same time, verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside, because, you know, Peter doesn't want to embarrass Jesus in front of the other disciples. He takes Jesus aside, and he begins to rebuke him. Let that sink in for just a minute. Simon, who was blind in his sin and unbelief, had to have God supernaturally and sovereignly open his eyes so that he could merely say four words, you are the Christ. And yet now that one who was once dead in their sins and trespasses now would pull aside the very Son of God, God very God from eternity past, the one through whom everything was made and for whom everything was made, to pull him aside and go, catch them. I think you got that one wrong. That he rebuked the creator of the universe. <laughs> because the cross was offensive. In 33, Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, I love that phrase. Turning, seeing his disciples elsewhere in the book of Mark, anytime you see language like that, it's always with a posture of, of love and of concern. So here Jesus looks at his disciples for whom he 
has great love and great affection. These men who he is pouring his life into and he knows will shortly go and lay down his life for, though they would reject him. He sees his disciples, lays his affection upon them, and for their sake rebukes Peter. Peter pulled Jesus aside, quietly rebukes him. Jesus sees the disciples and rebukes Peter in front of all of them. Why? Because no less than than the good news of the cross was at stake for them. That if they don't get the theology of the cross right, they're not going to get anything right. It's the linchpin that if you pull it, the whole trailer falls off. And look at what he says. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Notice here he doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. Get behind me, Petros. Get behind me, Rock. He says, get behind me, Satan. Because when you get the doctrine of the cross wrong, when you imply in any way that Christ would die for no reason, as the Judaizers are in Galatia, and as we often do whenever we add anything to the free grace of God in Christ crucified, then you get the gospel wrong. And when you get the doctrine of the cross wrong, then according to Jesus, you are in the grip of Satan. And if you get your theology of the cross wrong, then you are not Jesus' missionary in the world, but you are Satan's missionary in the world. That you are not for Christ, you are against Christ. If in any way you would add to the finished work of Christ on the cross, to seek to undermine it, to seek to boast in anything other than the cross. Many people, when they look at the Gospels, they look at them like biographies. It's a biography of Jesus. We have biographies of George Washington. Many of you have read the recent biography of of, uh, the former First Lady, Michelle Obama. Biographies are good biographies, but we approach the Gospels like biographies, and then we're puzzled why more than 50% of the Gospels are devoted to one week of Jesus' life. You go, that's a terrible biography. There's not a whole lot in here about his upbringing and his parents, his shaping influences. We don't see a whole lot of that at all. We see more than 50% of the Gospels devoted to one week in Jesus' life. And what is that one week ultimately devoted to? What centers? It is all about the cross of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just like Paul's letter to the Galatians, center on, are focused on, at the epicenter of each one of these Gospels, is the cross of Christ. Jesus came to save sinners. And he came to do that on a cross. Because according to Galatians 6, go back there if you have your finger there. Because according to Galatians 6, Paul says that if it wasn't for the cross of Christ dying as a substitute in the place of every sinner who would turn and trust in him, If it was not for that cross, then there would be no other blessings. There would be no new creation. There would be no peace. There would be no mercy. And so the cross of Christ is central. It is essential. It is not just incidental. It is foundational to everything in the Christian life. And Paul says, I would boast in nothing but the cross. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul could boast about a lot. He could boast that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He could boast that he was circumcised on the eighth day a Jew. He could boast, as he shared earlier in Galatians chapter 1, that he was advancing in Judaism well beyond those of his own age. He could boast in his own zeal for the traditions of his fathers. He had a lot to boast about, but he doesn't boast in any of that. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, he says that he, can, he counts all of that as net loss if all he gains is Christ. But notice also that He could boast about a lot of things in Jesus. He could boast about Jesus' virgin birth. He could boast about Jesus' authoritative teaching. He could boast about Jesus' perfect life and obedience to the law. He could could boast about about Jesus' miracles. He could boast about all kinds of things with Jesus. But he doesn't boast in any of those things. What does he boast in? He boasts 
in the cross. Notice he doesn't boast in the benefits of the gospel. He doesn't boast in his own regeneration. He doesn't boast in, excuse me, his own adoption. He doesn't boast in his own justification, though we can certainly praise God for all of those things. But without the cross of Christ, we have none of those things. I don't boast in my justification. I boast in Christ crucified, without which none of these other things would be true of me. The cross is central to everything. This is the object of my boast. But what does it mean to boast? I don't know why that I missed this for much of my week in preparation, but this morning I was just sitting there thinking, man, Paul, I get made fun of often because, you know, when you're a preacher, you communicate, you latch onto certain words and and, and you just use them all the time. You wear them out. One of, my, one of the words that I've been accused recently of wearing out is the word trajectory. Use that word all the time. Trajectory, trajectory. Some of you know what I'm talking about. This is one of those words that Paul wears out in his letters, is this idea of boasting. And you find it especially always in company with the cross of Christ and the finished work of Christ. He's really concerned with boasting. But what does it mean? To boast in something means that you would so exalt in something that you would orient your entire life around it. You would live for it and you would die for it. In fact, this word boasting is a military term. Boasting is what you do to get people to charge into battle and into almost certain death. How do you get people who are scared and fearful to charge headlong into battle, to risk their lives into certain death? You start with a boast. Our hands are strong. Our swords are strong. Our horses are mighty. We will win. We start with a boast. Remember your wives. Remember your children. Remember the republic. We will win. It's like... Braveheart. Well, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. That was awful. I'm sorry. If you're Scottish, forgive me. But there's a boast. Freedom is our boast. Or you may remember that cinematic masterpiece, Rocky IV. Rocky's sitting in the corner. And he's getting whooped by Ivan Drago, the Russian. Remember what his trainer says? He's coming to the end of the fight, and he says, all your strength, all your power, all your love, everything you got right now, that's a boast. What is it that you would live for? What is it that you would die for? What is it that you would orient all of your life around you? That you would go out into that ring one more time and charge that guy that's bent on killing you? That's what a boast is intended to do. We see in Exodus 15, Egypt's boast. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. 1 Kings chapter 20. Let not him who straps on his armor boast in himself as he who takes it off. Or... 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's prayer, my mouth boasts over my enemies. Boasting is all about what you'll live for and die for. It's about the highest prize. That a boast is how you get yourself ready to charge. Everybody boasts in something. Everybody has a boast. There's not a person in here that doesn't have a boast. Something that you would say, this is my life. We say this in a number of different ways. Oh, my grandkids, my grandkids are my life. My kids, my kids are my life. Right? We say that often in a lot of different things that are really valuable. And what we're saying here is I would do anything for them. That I would live for them, I will die for them, I'll do whatever I have to do for them. They are my life. I would give up whatever I have to give up for them. 
Everybody has a boast. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a career, maybe it's upward mobility, maybe it's a, it's a spouse, maybe it's the, the idea of a potential spouse, maybe it's who knows what it is, but everybody has a boast. But God says in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. He's not saying that there aren't wise men. He's not saying that there's not mighty men. He's not saying that there's not rich men. He's saying none of those things, as great as they are, are worthy of your boast, are worthy of your life, are worthy of your death than this chief boast that you would know me, that you would be willing to give up all wisdom, all might, and all riches to attain this treasure buried in the middle of a worthless field, the knowledge of God in Christ. So a boast is really all about your identity. What is it that you look to to that validates you or strengthens you or makes you confident to face things. Those are the things that we boast in. We boast in those things which give us life. And yet Paul says in Colossians 3, many of you have read it, but I wonder if you've been tempted to go by too quickly on this, that when Christ appears, who is your life? Do you ever see that little clause in there? Christ, who is your life? I think that's the best summary statement for what it means to boast. Christ, who is your boast, appears. Christ, who is your life, appears. So it's your life. How do you know what you boast in, though? I think probably the best way is that whenever Satan accuses us, tells us that we're sinners, tells us of our guilt, tells us of our failure, reminds us of how we have not lived up. When those moments come in our own lives, whether in our marriages, in our parenting, in our schooling, at work, whatever it may be, we turn in those moments to whatever it is that we boast in. Well, listen, I may not have done real well, but I'm a really good father. I may have failed over here, but look at the way that I've succeeded over here. I'm a really good mama. I'm a really good employee. I'm a really good boss. I'm a really good student. I'm a straight-A dean's list. Martin Luther says that whenever we do that, the devil will always outflank us. Because as soon as we look to anything but Christ, he always undermines it with another accusation. That's why the truth that we need to return to time and again is found in the hymn that we sing, that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there, Christ on the cross, who put an end to all my sin. That when Satan tempts you to despair and he tells you of the guilt within, whatever you turn to in that moment is your boast. Do you turn to Christ? Do you upward look and see him there? And do you find freedom and relief in gazing upon the one who has put an end to all of your sin? Are you able to say with Martin Luther that whenever the devil accuses me, I think, devil, you do me well. For you remind me that I am a sinner and Christ died for sinners. You point me to Christ. Whatever we turn to is what we boast in. And Paul says that by far be it for me that I would boast in anything but Christ by which this world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's three crosses in Galatians 6. Christ on the cross, the world on the cross, and me on the cross. It's the glorious doctrine of the union with Christ. And because we've been united to Christ and because we've been crucified with him on the cross, Paul's already explained this in chapter 2, and because it's no longer we who live but Christ in us, then the world and all of its vanity is dead to me and I am dead to the world. It means that everything in this world has been put to death to me and that I no longer find my life in it. And I don't care what the world thinks because I've got Christ. Being associated with the right kind of people isn't our identity. That's why Paul's able to say at the beginning of Galatians 6, don't be conceited. Don't be full of vainglory. 
Don't be prideful that if anyone is caught in a transgression, don't go, oh, sinner, thank God I'm not like that guy. And refuse to associate again. You don't want to be associated with those kind of sinners. That would just bring down your social capital. What does Paul say? If anyone's caught in a transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Only if the cross of Christ, of laying down his life for yours, can compel you to lay down your own life for others in this way. That money isn't your identity anymore. Now you can, in verses 6 through 10, just give it away for the gospel's sake. I'm not building my own kingdom. That stuff's all going to fade away. I want to invest as much as I can, as generously as I can, into those things that will last. I want to sow in this life, and I want to reap eternal life, in verse 8. So you understand all of this is connected. How is it that Paul can say, restore sinful brothers, give generously to the work of the gospel? Answer is, if Christ is not your life, if Christ is not your boast, if your life isn't centered on the cross of Christ, you can't and won't do any of this. This is motivated by the grace of God in Christ and can only be motivated by that. It's the great equalizer. It's the great humiliator. But according to Paul in verse 15... It's the great resurrector. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul's saying what counts is not circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, Colossians 3. What matters is not outward behavior, outward modifications, outward religion. What you need is a new heart with new affections and new desires that long to love Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love others as he has loved you. You need to become a new creation that you would be crucified with him that no longer you who live but he who lives in you. And you know that you're a new creation. Say, how do I know? You know you're a new creation when more and more in your life the cross of Christ is your boast. That the cross of Christ is the very means whereby dead men are made alive in a new creations. And if you're a new creation, then that cross of Christ is your life. You would live for it. You would die for it. It is your boast. When Christ, who is my life, appears. Don't look at things below that are earthly, but look at that which is above where Christ is. Ephesians 2, you have been seated with Christ. He is your life. You know you're a new creation and you know you're growing in grace when increasingly so, Christ and his cross is your boast. And that begins to permeate the way that you relate to fellow messy sinners that the world wouldn't want to associate with. That begins to permeate the way that you relate not only to others but to your possessions. That begins to change and radically transform everything. And the result, Paul says, for all those who walk by this rule that is boasting in the cross, the rule of a new creation, is peace and mercy that you would have peace and that God's mercy would fall on you through Christ crucified on your behalf. Would you describe your life as marked by peace and mercy? Ah, oh, friends, for every look, 10 looks that you, for every look that you put on yourself, give 10 looks to Christ. On his great work, on the cross for you, that while you were yet undesirable, Christ died for you. That Christ would be ridiculed and beaten and rejected so that you might be praised by the Father and accepted. That Christ would be forsaken and abandoned by all of those who professed to love him so that he might fulfill his promise that he will never abandon those whom he loves.
got to be our boast. Christ has to be our life. And I am preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. I do not have a master's degree in boasting in Christ. So we aim to help one another to this end, that Christ would be our life.